Well, it's good to see you guys, <laughs> or at least, a, at least a half of the face I can see. Everything looks good, uh, but it's a, it's a great delight to be, to be gathered back here in the sanctuary to worship God. Our text is, is going to be the uh, First Peter text. We're getting back to the, uh, the series on First Peter, so the text is the New Testament lesson from First Peter 2, and there is here at, at this point, this juncture in First Peter, there's a turn outward, uh, toward the world, uh, toward the Christian's responsibilities in society. To this point in 1 Peter, just to briefly remind you, he's had a lot to say about our vertical relationship to God, our, our future hope, our inheritance laid up in heaven. He's spoken of a coming salvation. He's spoken of this bestowal of glory and honor that will come at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So here, and, and beginning today, and Lord willing, over the next couple of weeks, we'll see that being citizens, citizens whose hope is fixed on the coming glory, does not mean earthly retreat. In fact, it requires a certain, a certain form of life, an engagement with the world and with the institutions of the world. Now, it's a chastened engagement. It's a sober engagement, to be sure. There's nothing utopian in it. But it's real. It's genuine witness, nonetheless. And so, the text that we're looking at is a sort of initial unpacking of what Peter already spoke of back in chapter 1 when he said to us, Be holy in all your conduct. As God is holy. Right? He spoke to us of conducting ourselves in fear during the time of our stay or our exile on the earth. So, this text reminds us then of the first principles, the first things, if you will, the sort of basic settings of Christian existence as exiles in a hostile world. So, we're going to make two points. There's only two verses, abstain in verse 11 and good lives in verse 12. So, first then, abstaining. So, dear friends or beloved, Peter starts. So, remember, he's already said Christ it was, is the beloved son who was rejected, the chosen one who was rejected. And he's, and he's told these scattered Asian Christians, Christians in Asia Minor, right, that they themselves, facing rejection, are also, like Christ, chosen and beloved. And as such, we are urged, notice the text says, as foreigners and strangers. This is the third time in a chapter and a half that Peter has used this designation. Strangers, foreigners, exiles, aliens. It's clearly important to his understanding of the Christian life. The basic idea is simple enough to understand, right? An exile is someone who's away from their homeland. Peter opened the book using the word diaspora, right? The idea of the Jews being scattered away from their land. You are ex exiles scattered, he says, spread abroad. So, right, if you live in New Jersey or any state and you have opinions which are different than everybody else in the state, that does not make you an exile. 
You're still a citizen of New Jersey. That makes you a dissident, perhaps, or a minority. Exiles live away from their homeland. That's the key idea. They live away from their homeland. They live as temporary residents wherever they are. And they're journeying toward their true homeland. Abraham himself uses this language. When he dwells, dwelt in Canaan, he dwelt as a stranger, we're told, in tents, in the promised land as in a foreign land. So we too, we too who will inherit the earth, dwell in the land of promise as in a foreign land. Now our situation is much better than Abraham's. Because by faith we've already been lifted up to our heavenly destination. We already have the down payment, the pledge of our inheritance in the gift of the Holy Spirit. But the full inheritance as we have seen, is reserved for us in heaven. That's how Peter opens his book. You have an inheritance reserved, kept, preserved for you in heaven. Imperishable, undefiled, unfading. So we live in this situation, and getting this situation right is tricky. The kingdom has been inaugurated, yet it has not been consummated. And the Christian lives in this tension, and if we break this tension, or we relax it, we end up distorting the Christian life, especially when it comes to engagement with the world. So, our lives, they're hidden with Christ and God, Paul says. And when Christ is revealed in glory, then you'll be revealed in glory. Until then, there's this tension. Faith, but not sight. Raised with Christ, hidden with God, strangers in the earth. Strangers in a land that we are destined to possess when the veil between heaven and earth itself is torn away at Christ's appearing. And so all ethics then is ethics in and shaped by this kind of tension, this kind of ambiguity. Peter is at the head of a long section on Christian living here. And I would encourage you uh, over the next couple weeks to read right from here, chapter 2, verse 11, through chapter 3, verse 12. Because that's the section where he goes into the Christian's responsibilities toward the world. And he heads that section with this, as foreigners and exiles. Live this way. All ethics are exile ethics. Ethics for this overlap of the ages, where the new age has arrived, but the old order of sin and death and the powers has not yet vanished. Ethics for the time in between. Ethics for the already and the not yet. I urge you, as foreigners and exiles. So much of this is absent in Christian discourse about how to engage the world. This accent is at the head. It's like the spice that runs through the whole course of food that Peter's going to serve us. So he starts with this. I urge you as foreigners, as exiles, as people with a different homeland, to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. So here's the first thing to note. Because very shortly here, Peter's going to talk about how we relate to the civil magistrate and the emperor and governors and all sorts of other things. But ethics is first of all an interior reality. 
Right? It's an interior reality. It has to do with your soul, which here just means your whole person. So pilgrims, with their eyes fixed on Christ, seeing him who is invisible, are not to be seduced by or conformed to the world in its fallen state because they're not part of the current world order. They're exiles. They are, then, to abstain. And the word implies a complete cutting off. It's a kind of moral fasting. They are to abstain, we are to abstain from all disordered and sinful desires. What Peter called earlier in the book, the passions of our ignorance. Our desires then, inherited by nature, fostered by the world, can be deeply twisted. And they need to be healed. They need to be reordered, restructured to God to what is true and what is good and what is beautiful. And the first step in reordering your desires, in reforming your soul, the first step is abstaining from evil desire, from what Augustine called disordered loves, because we are intrinsically loving, worshiping, liturgical creatures, but we love the wrong things. We worship the wrong things. And so our loves need to be healed, Augustine said. They need to be reordered. So it must be said then, at the outset, that there's something about Christian ethics which is profoundly negative. And I don't mean bad. I don't mean bad. I mean a sharp negation, a no to the evil which has its roots deep down in us, which is entrenched in us. Right? The Ten Commandments reflect this basic no, right? with their thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. Eight of the Ten Commandments have that negative frame. Beware, beware of any ethical system that builds itself up, constructs itself of only positive statements. Because our sinful Passions have these enormously clever ways of rationalizing evil, often under sweet-sounding, general, positive statements. Imagine, I'll give you an example of this. Imagine if the seventh commandment was not, thou shalt not commit adultery. That's negative. Let's say it was this. Thou shalt respect a healthy marriage. Now, you don't need much imagination to see how deadly that could be. After all, we have people today. But we don't have to make this up. We have people today who say that adultery and open marriages and polyamory and the like are things that make marriage stronger. They assert that they're respecting a healthy marriage. Thou shalt not commit adultery has done more to protect the integrity of marriage than a million positive, hallmark-sounding, sweet sentiments about marriage. You get this right, and you can add the positive stuff to it. But if you get this wrong, you eviscerate the positive statements of any meaning whatsoever. 
Right? You end up with, yes, of course, we commit a lot of affairs, we have a lot of affairs, but we're incredibly supportive of helping each other find our truest and best selves. So in the Christian vision of the moral life, sojourners first say no. They abstain. Now, of course, we do so always, not by our own resources, or by the resources of the law. We do so at every point by the gospel of free grace, right? It's, it's not the gospel at the beginning, it's the gospel at every point. It's union with Jesus Christ, put off the old, put on the new, right? Sojourners die, and then they are raised. They put to death or mortify, then they are quickened. We reckon ourselves dead to sin. We present our members alive from the dead unto God. We are always doing this in union with the gospel of the crucified and risen Christ. So at the outset here, we abstain. And this abstention persists throughout the whole time of our exile. This is what Peter means by fear God during your stay as exiles. And the reason for this, because, Peter says, these lusts, These passions, they wage war against your soul. So all of us are in in this internal battle, an internal war with eternal consequences. First principle, contextual principle of Christian thinking about ethics is this. Life is warfare. The Christian moral life is very hard, humanly impossible. It's a raging war. It's been a raging war from Cain to us. Have you ever thought about this? Your children and your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren are born with the exact same broken, twisted, fallen nature that Cain had and Abel had. Like, it doesn't get better. Like, you might think, well, I've got a better, I know more than my father did and my grandfather did and we're making all this progress. But then conceive a child. That child gets the exact same fallen nature that all the fallen sons of Adam had, and the war starts again in the next generation. Right? From the point of view of sanctification, we're starting over all the time. Right? From Cain to us, to our children, to our grandchildren. This battle does not get easier from generation to generation. Every generation is summoned into it. It's the same struggle. It would be naive, right, to think, well, I've wrestled through all these moral quandaries and struggles and failures, etc., in my life, so I'm sure it'll be easier for my kids. Well, you can pass some wisdom on, but you can't touch that inherited corruption. That's a sovereign work of the Spirit, and they're going to have to wrestle with it just like you did. So you've got this world out there with its pride and the lust of the eyes and all of its vanity and all of its glitter waging war against your disordered soul every minute of every day. And we're either losing ground here or we're gaining it. Everyone's a full-time active enlisted soldier in the war. This is where all ethics starts. It starts with a long, hard look in the mirror. This is the bedrock. We are to be much, 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 much more concerned with the state of our own souls than the state of other people's souls. This interior terrain of the soul, 
It's the first, the primary battleground. So notice, before Peter moves out into the culture or to society, he moves down and he moves in, into the interior recesses of the human person where all of this deep, unseen, consequential issues of life are being wrought and worked out. It reminds one of those wonderful words from the book of Proverbs, from Proverbs 4. Guard your heart with all diligence, for out of it, out of it, right? Not out of Washington or Albany, but out of your heart flow the great issues of life. Abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your own soul, your own well-being as a human person. Or as Paul puts this in Galatians 5, right? The desires of the flesh wage war against the spirit. They are opposed to each other to keep you from doing what you ought to do. So this is a bracing word. But there's an irreconcilable war here. And as pilgrims and as aliens, Peter and I urge you. Abstain from disordered desire. Walk in the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So that's abstain. The second point is good lives. Good lives. So verse 12 continues, live such good lives among the pagans, literally among the nations. God is gathering a, a holy nation from among the nations. Live good lives among the pagans. Now, the word for good here is actually not the normal word used in the New Testament for moral goodness. This word actually means beautiful. Thus, the sermon title. It means beautiful or attractive. Now, I think this is very important. I think it's important that Peter uses a word about what we call aesthetics, meaning about the visual realm, about things that can be seen. It's kind of a visual arts word. He's now speaking about the visible beauty of your ethical life. And this is important because one can be morally rigorous and still be unattractive or ugly. Remember, we've seen this in here before. The people who condemned and crucified Jesus were not indifferent people or liberal people or nominal people or half-committed people. They were hyper-scrupulous people. They were religious. They were devout. They were very intent on keeping the law. Right? They were the defenders of the flag. They were the upholders of the truth. They were the guardians of the tradition against all these evil, immoral people, against all the corruption in the Jewish nation. But they were monsters. Monsters. They were, to put it mildly, morally unattractive. It's not that they were not morally rigorous. They were morally ugly. And anyone who knows themselves who knows the life of the church, knows this sad phenomenon. Especially in the Reformed tradition. That we who profess the gospel of free grace, sovereign grace, abundant grace, grace without any human contribution, the gospel of abundant mercy, can easily become, easily become, the most self-righteous and unctuous people on the planet. 
I'm not the first person to note this about the Reformed tradition. It's a horrific thing. It is so easy for us to draw the world in such a way that there are white hats and we have them on, and there are black hats and they have those on. And to miss the profound point, Solzhenitsyn makes this point somewhere, right? The profound point that the line between good and evil does not run through states, but it runs through every human heart. To somehow embrace a kind of discourse where it is forgotten that our own corruption is such that there needs to be the lacerated and broken son of God on the cross for us, right? is to have gone a long way for moral beauty. Jesus is acutely aware, by the way, in the Sermon on the Mount of this problem. He's aware that it's precisely the activities of piety and devotion. It's right at the place where virtue is to be cultivated. That becomes the very breeding ground for hypocrisy and moral ugliness. Right? He has to say, look, when you fast, don't do this. When you pray, don't do that. When you give, don't do this. So, everybody loves a holy war. Everybody loves to get things lined up with with one side or the other. But we are first and foremost here concerned with ourselves as the place where the wreckage is. So, Peter then is looking for an obedience which produces a fragrance, a radiance, or a beauty. And this is important, right? Because he is going to give us morally demanding commandments here. He's not going to say that the solution is, well, just chuck all rigorous ethical engagement then because we're all such hypocrites. He doesn't do that. Of course not. He's going to give us a serious call. To engagement. But this sort of serious ethical call or summons, if we subtly fall back on our own resources, if we become unaware that we are our own worst enemies, then generally you get two outcomes here. These are, this is what happens in the Christian life when the commandments of the Christian life are taken like laws. The first one is despair. I mean, who can keep all these commands? Who can walk in a manner worthy of the Christian calling? Right? You end up with a perpetual sense of failure. Or, the second option is self-righteousness. Pride. Hey, I'm, I'm doing pretty good. Certainly better than those people. Better than those godless pagans or those half-committed Christians. Are those compromised people over there? Neither outcome is beautiful. That's the point I want you to see here. Neither outcome is lovely. So what's, this is why the gospel is so beautiful. Because the gospel is the way out of this quandary. Right? Because the gospel is able both to transform you, to really bring change to you, and to keep you humble at the same time. That's what we need, right? Something that is able to transform us and make us humble as we're being transformed. Something which can both break you and heal you. Something which can both slay you and make you alive. And only the gospel of Jesus Christ can do this. 
right? Transformation without humility is grotesque self-righteousness. And humility without any moral change is just thinly papered over despair. So we want to ask ourselves, Peter has challenged us to, to think this way, I think. If transformation or humility, if breaking or healing is missing, then the gospel is not having its way with us. So, abstaining from sinful desires by the gospel produces not despair nor pride. It produces beauty. Produces beauty. Now, it is in our day, I think, the beauty of the Christian vision, the beauty of the triune God, the beauty of Jesus Christ, the radiance of the Christian moral life. These are the things, I think, that are the most needed in our culture. And they're often the most absent and uh, replaced often with a kind of shrill, formally correct position. We can easily be right and still fail to reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ. We're rarely in need, rarely in need of better arguments. What Peter says is we need more beautiful people. We need more beautiful people. We need to tell and embody, narrate a more beautiful way, a more beautiful story. And so the kind of loveliness that Peter has in view here when he says live beautiful lives. Remember the word for good in your English translation means beautiful. Live beautiful lives, right? It can't, this, this kind of beauty cannot be reduced to manners or, or you know, polite conventions or even personal morality, per se. What, it, what we're after here then, to put it simply, is Christ himself made visible and shining in us. You know what's remarkable in an age which is hurtling, you know, as fast as it can into some anti-Christian future is that even among some of the most despised, uh, most, uh, you know, prominent despisers of the faith, Jesus himself is very hard for them to shake. Now, the church gets all kinds of criticism. Some of it's deserved, actually. Um, But you can find critics of Christianity they really get hesitant to go directly after Jesus Christ because there's a moral beauty and a certain kind of splendor about him, right? The church, on the other hand, can be quite morally ugly. This is not to say Jesus doesn't have his critics, but you will notice that there's a a reticence and even a respect that enemies of the church Give to Jesus, because he is the model, right? What we're after here is Christ himself made visible in us. By the way, you can't substitute for this. You can't, you can't lay that aside and substitute something like this. Christian principles made visible within me. That creates a different kind of person. Yes, we, want, we have principles that we live by, but they are principles that are the product or the fruit or the downstream effect of the living Christ himself and his splendor and beauty inhabiting and radiating his life through us. So, we live this way among the pagans, Peter says. Notice this in the text. Though they accuse you of doing wrong. So, we should get this straight so that we're sober. Peter does not expect your ethical beauty to be celebrated. 
You know, maybe a, a long piece in the New Yorker on the beauty of Christian ethics. You know, something like that. A Saturday Night Live skit celebrating your abstaining from the lusts that everyone else is indulging in. That's not going to happen. He expects vilification. He expects wrongdoing. He expects mocking. He expects gross distortions. And this expectation has largely been met quite frequently from the beginning. Being slander just goes with this territory. Tacitus was a first century Roman historian. He said Christians are loathed for their vices. Nero blames Christians for the burning of Rome. Use the exact same phrase. These people are loathed for their vices. Suetonius, another first century Roman historian, said the Christian faith is a pernicious superstition. He accused Christians of hatred for the human race. By the way, you can hear some of these criticisms coming back. Christians were called atheists and subversives because they wouldn't worship the gods. Cannibals because they claimed to eat and drink the body and blood of a man. They were called incestuous because you had grown adults calling one another brother and sister. So false and twisted charges have been there from the beginning. You can find them. But, but get this. The beauty is not snuffed out. Right? The beauty does its silent, enticing work. The beauty is what God uses. So we live this way, so although they do accuse you of doing wrong, notice, Peter says, they may see your good deeds. Good lives produce good deeds, or beautiful lives produce beautiful deeds. They're not likely to respond to our wonderful ideas, and I say that as an ideas kind of guy. (laughs) They're not likely to respond to them. They will see your good deeds, the beauty of your embodied ethic. Some will vilify. Peter is basically saying this. Some will vilify, some will see. And some who vilify will become those who see. That's always important to remember when you're dealing with a vilifier. They will glorify God on what Peter calls the day of visitation. Right? We heard... Something similar to this in the gospel, right? The short gospel lesson where Jesus says, let your light shine that they may see your good deeds and glorify glorify your Father who's in heaven. So the beautiful life is what calls people. It's what entices people. It draws them to ascribe glory, beauty to God, our Father in heaven. And the word for visitation, where Peter says the day of visitation, it's an interesting word. We get the word episcopal from it like the word for bishops. Uh, It's the word for what bishops do, meaning they visit, and then they inspect, and they evaluate. So on the day of visitation here, God is the bishop. And he visits, and he does inspection. And so Peter means here the day of judgment. When he speaks of the day of visitation, he's looking toward the last day, just as he asked throughout the whole letter. If you read 1 Peter, it's hard to miss this orientation toward the coming future. So many have seen the works of God's people, and they've been drawn to glorify God. But many still accuse, many still lie, many still vilify. Peter says, look, a day is going to come when every knee will bow, 
and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory, the beauty, the splendor of God the Father. That is the day of visitation. If we didn't believe in this day of visitation, we would have to just reduce Christianity to another sect or another political organization fighting for its own rights. But we believe in the day of visitation. And Paul tells us, Paul connects this bending of every knee, this confessing of every tongue. Paul connects it to the day of judgment. In Romans 14, he puts it this way there. For we will all stand before God's judgment seat, as it is written, As surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, and every tongue will acknowledge God. Every tongue is going to acknowledge the beauty and the splendor and the goodness of God in Jesus Christ. Right? There is a day, there's a day, the day of visitation, when the saints' goodness and beauty will be openly acknowledged, and God will be ascribed glory by every tongue. This is just the opening foray for Peter. But it sets the tone. It sets the tone for his ethic of engagement with the world, which again, I encourage you to read from chapter 2, verse 11, through chapter 3, verse 12, just one chapter. So we are sojourners, and as sojourners, you are God's beautification project. Let us abstain from all that wages war against our souls. And let us seek by, God, by the gospel of God's grace to live these luminous lives, good lives, beautiful lives, lives that summon the world to doxology and to glorifying God. This is what the Torah calls the beauty of holiness. Right? Reflecting in the earth the beauty of the God who said, you shall be holy for I am holy. We could summarize this whole sermon by taking that classical statement of biblical ethics, you shall be holy, for I am holy, and transposing it into Peter's key. And there it would read like this, you shall be beautiful, for I am beautiful. Amen.